Welcome back to Know Thyself. This is the history podcast where we try to figure out who we are by looking at where we've been and what we've done. I'm the host, Noel Armstrong, trying to resurrect sense and meaning from the dust of a billion factoids. I'm excited about today because we're going to begin an entirely new series, a series on the 10 worst people who have ever blighted this earth with their miserable existence. So if that sounds like a little bit of a downer, just think of it this way. Next time you're feeling like maybe you're not such a good person, maybe you did a few things wrong, just listen to one of these episodes and learn what really, truly evil bad people are. And you'll feel really good about yourself, almost guaranteed. So if you've listened to some of the episodes in the podcast, you know I usually start my monologue episodes with the What is the Truth introduction with Pontius Pilate. You'll notice I'm not starting this episode with that. Normally I begin a series with a monologue, but this one I'm not going to. This one we're going to be talking about Jim Jones, the number 10 worst person who's ever lived on this planet. I don't have time today to go into the criteria. I'll do that in a subsequent episode because today I have the opportunity to speak at length with an actual survivor from the People's Temple. And because of the length of the interview, because of the intensity of the interview, I do not want to also try to mix this with some kind of long screed of my own. So I'm going to give just a very brief introduction to who Jim Jones was. And then as I'm speaking to Laura Johnston Cole, an actual survivor, somebody who actually knew Jim Jones. So many of these figures become iconically evil and you don't think they were real people. Fortunately with Jim Jones, we still have people alive who knew him, who experienced what happened and can speak with first-hand experience about how evil this man was. So Laura Johnston Cole coming up, but first, a very brief introductory bio to Jim Jones. There's lots of places to get the full biography of Jim Jones. And if you're interested, I would refer you to the various books and websites that contain that information. But today I'm just going to give like the five minute introduction because I want to get right to our interview. So the 10th worst person who ever lived on the face of the earth was born in 1931 in Crete. And no, not the island. He was born in Crete, Indiana. His father had been disabled to some extent by mustard gas in World War I. His mother was a very strong, very hardworking person who unfortunately had no time at all for Jim. Jim found a mother figure in one of his neighbors and she was a very religious woman. She took him to church and it was one of those holy roller churches, they used to call them, where they got very excited, rolled in the aisle, spoke in tongues, shouted with enthusiasm. And in this group, Jim found purpose and meaning and a sense of belonging. He was a weird kid, I mean, let's face it. He wore church clothes every single day of the week to school. He gathered together friends, whoever he could get, and made them listen to him doing these mock revival preaching sessions in the barn or on the street corner, somewhere like that. He seems to have been very intelligent. He graduated from high school with honors. He went to work as an orderly in a hospital, and he was apparently a very good orderly, a very hard-working orderly, very well-respected and trusted. There he met Marceline, who had become his wife, and pursued her until her parents agreed to let her marry Jim. And as he was 
working as an orderly, courting Marceline, and going to the undergraduate university. He was also fascinated with these iconic leaders, these men who seemed to cast a very long shadow, as we spoke about in the last episode. People like Mao, Stalin, Hitler, Gandhi. He studied their biographies extensively. But from an early age, it was really hard to tell that Jim would turn out to be evil. There is a rumor that he stabbed a cat, rumor that he dropped a dog from a height to kill it, but I really don't know how to confirm those. We do know that he held funerals for various animals where he could have another venue for his preaching and sermonizing as a small child. Kind of a weird thing to do again. But from a pretty young age, possibly as a rebellion against his Ku Klux Klan father, Jim began to identify with the oppressed people. He began to identify with African Americans. He, after marrying Marceline, adopted African American and Korean children, had a child of his own. He called it his rainbow family. He did a lot of great work for the African American community there in Indianapolis. In fact, the mayor of Indianapolis appointed him director of the Human Rights Commission. And during that time, Jones helped to racially integrate churches, restaurants, telephone company, the police department, a theater, an amusement park, and the Methodist hospital. He was a tireless campaigner. He begged white families not to move out of areas where black families had moved in to prevent white flight. He set up stings to catch restaurants who were refusing to serve black people. He wrote to the American Nazi leaders and then passed responses to the media had them published to kind of counter the Nazi messages of racial hatred. So far, so good, I have to say. He would never make this list if that's all he had done. But when you're a paranoid, narcissistic psychopath, things usually go a little south at some point, so he began to fear nuclear war. He began to fear that people were hampering him from achieving his objectives. He wanted more publicity, he wanted more power. He moved his congregation from Indiana to Redwood Valley in California. Subsequently, he wanted to be closer to the seats of power because he had this petty little tyrant heart. So he moved closer to San Francisco. He did find some level of success, power, and notoriety, but allegations of mistreatment and misconduct surfaced. He wanted to move his group to Guyana, to an area of this South American country where they could live without any type of oversight, where he could be the prophet, priest, and king of his little fiefdom. So he packed up his chimpanzee, his dark glasses that he wore even indoors, his groups of men wearing berets and carrying rifles, and he moved down to Guyana to build a paradise on earth. And when the recipe is Jim Jones, military guys in berets, a monkey, and dark glasses, you can guess how it turned out. And the rest is history we'll be talking about on the podcast when I talk to Laura Johnston Cole. And as you hear her, you will hear why he is a terrible human being. But it's not just that he's a terrible human being. I have to admit, he also stands in, in my mind, for all those types of people who use religion, who become cult leaders, who use some idealistic principle. Everything that's best in their followers, they channel it for their own self-aggrandizement, for their own sick self-satisfaction. Well, that's a lot of S's, sorry. But basically, these people take what's best in others and they exploit it. And the exploitation becomes more and more and more obvious as they go along. And so without further ado, I bring you the interview with Laura Johnson Cole on Know Thyself. Today I'm fortunate to be able to speak with Laura Johnston Cole. 
Ms. Cole was a member of the People's Temple in California and in Guyana. She lived in Jonestown, but was working in Georgetown on 18th of November, 1978, on that fateful day. She's an educator, a public speaker, a Quaker, a lifelong advocate for the underprivileged and marginalized, and she lectures at universities about new religions, cult psychology, and even the turbulent decades of the 60s and the 70s. So, Laura, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I'm really delighted to be here. So can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Um, I grew up in Washington, D.C. I went to, you know, elementary school through high school there. And in a way, what I learned is that even though there was a civil war that was won by the North, there were still lots of different feelings about integration, about people moving into to neighborhoods that had been segregated for decades and things like that. And so even in high school, I was pretty active in politics and helping to integrate amusement parks nearby and things. Um, in 1965, I went to college at University of Bridgeport in Connecticut, and I was a philosophy major. But that was a time that, you know, the 60s was the most violent, uh, reactionary time in American politics in many ways. In that one decade, we saw uh, John Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Medgar Evans, Medgar Evers, and um, Elijah Muhammad, or no, Malcolm X, were all killed, slaughtered by people who were hateful and didn't want for movement in our country. So by the time 1970 came and the war in Vietnam had already killed many of my fellow high school students, I was really an activist looking for a way to be involved. So I was in college for three years in Connecticut. Then I dropped out and briefly got married. Um, I tried going to Woodstock, thinking that possibly, you know, the way to, to not be quite so conscientious would be if I were stoned all the time. And that didn't work. Um, I stopped that and then I got involved with the Black Panthers in Connecticut. And my boyfriend was a Black Panther, and we had the Black Panther meetings in my kitchen in Bridgeport, Connecticut, for a couple of months. And then everything seemed to go wrong in my personal life with the Panthers. Then eventually my sister talked me into moving out to San Francisco, California. So that was March of 1970. And it was just really that whole, the 10 years before I moved out was a time that I was into all kinds of activist politics and demonstrations, but I hadn't found a way to do it safely uh, for you know, my own individual health and safety. So um, in March of 1970, I moved to San Francisco, and almost right away, my sister took me up to meet Jim Jones and visit People's Temple, because he was a socialist minister. He had a completely integrated um, you know, community around his religion, the People's Temple. But he was more than that. He spoke to all the other people that I really idolized, like Angela Davis. He was involved with the Black Panthers. He worked with Cesar Chavez. He worked with the American Indian Movement. So in many ways, he was everything that I was looking for, and it seemed to be in a safe environment. So in the summer of 1970, I moved up to Redwood Valley, where People's Temple was located, and I lived there the next seven years until I moved to Guyana in 1977. So I was part of People's Temple for seven years up there. I worked full-time at the Welfare Department, but while in the temple, I drove a Greyhound bus across the country a number of times and all over California. 
I was head of security up in Redwood Valley briefly. I was involved in all kinds of different things in this integrated and really inclusive community. And I did love it. And whenever I saw problems with it, I thought, okay, well, things will get better when we don't have to work quite so hard against the racists. We can clean up our act and make sure everything is perfect. But I was kind of a, I bought the line, the ends justified the means. And we had, we were driven to create a utopian society. And in 1977, a lot of us moved to Guyana, South America, because we thought we'd have less interference in trying to create this kind of um, idealistic world. So I lived in Guyana for nearly two years, living in both Georgetown and in Jonestown, Guyana, until the end, until the very end, November 18th, 1978, when I happened to be in Georgetown when all the deaths took place in Jonestown. You have some serious 60s credibility here. You checked off a <laughs> lot of big boxes, Woodstock, Black Panthers. You were an, I, I understand you were tear-gassed at one point during a protest. So you were a child right. of the 60s to some extent, weren't you? I wasn't. I think that one of the impacts was, was that because of that, I never very, got involved with drugs. There were people in my generation who got swept up by free love, free sex, free drugs and all that. And the one part I didn't get caught up in is the drugs. So because I had kind of a focus and I had a plan, sometimes the line was blurry over those years, but I basically had a plan that I did want to make the world a better place. And I wasn't going to let up on expecting that of myself to make to make some kind of contribution to make the world better. So let me go back just a little bit. You say your sister is the one who introduced you to Jim Jones. Yes. I understand from uh, looking into your story just a little bit and seeing another interview you've done that your sister decided not to affiliate with the People's Temple, and you did. Why was that? That's right. My sister thought that Jim Jones just had too enormous an ego. She just couldn't stand being around him <laughs> because she thought he was so... Um, such an egomaniac. She's been an activist in a way, not to the extreme that I was. And so when she wasn't, um, you know, as interested in being part of People's Temple, I kind of looked at it as, you know, because I was more politically active than she was. Um, you know, of course, looking back, we see it a whole other way. that She identified his behavior long before I did. But always in my life, you know, I've been reluctant to take other people's advice. I always trusted, trusted myself. If I wanted to do something, I would just kind of do what I thought was good. And so that got me into a lot of trouble. I've survived several different close calls, even not, I mean, not even mentioning people's temple, which was a very close call. But there have been other times in my life that I survived close calls because of my bad judgment. Let me ask you this. What was your initial impression of Jim Jones? Your sister was turned off by his ego. What did you think when you first met him? When I first walked into the building at People's Temple, it was exactly the kind of group that I had been looking for because it was totally integrated. There are people, you know, there was black and white and Hispanic and Asian. Um, there were people who were old and young, educated and not educated, you know, people who were affluent and people who weren't. It was the kind of community that I wanted to spend my time with. I mean, even today, it would be the idyllic community for me to live in. 
a community that everybody you sat down with in any setting had a life different than yours. You could broaden your experience by talking to these people who had a different kind of lifestyle. So really, it was exactly the community I wanted. So that was number one. Then when Jim started talking, and he was up on in the you know in front of the meeting room and uh, at a podium, you know he talked exactly what I wanted to hear. He was political. He talked about Angela Davis. He talked about calls he had had with other leadership in the progressive movement. He talked about all the issues that were so dear to me after you know working with the Panthers and being an activist. And so I saw him as somebody who was kind of a protector and somebody who was on the right, you know, wasn't conservative, wasn't even moderate, somebody who was radical way out there with me. So I was impressed right away by what he was talking about. And when he talked about the Bible, it wasn't exclusively religion. He might talk about Matthew 25 and feeding the hungry and clothing the naked. But he would talk with different scriptures that made sense to me as an activist. And so I was just impressed by the whole, you know, the venue and what he had to say uh, with his family. He had a beautiful rainbow family of wonderful kids. Um, his wife sat on the stage with him and appeared to be mesmerized by what he was saying, which I think I always appreciated that he was a family man and that obviously his family treasured what he was talking about. So, I mean, just on every single front, I was impressed. And what was your impression of his wife? Well, Marceline was always wonderful. And, you know, I didn't know the behind the scenes of what was going on. Obviously, Jim's ego was the number one, you know, was beyond dispute. So she would sacrificed many things so that she could raise this wonderful family. And she was very smart. She was a registered nurse, and she investigated uh, different care homes around California to make sure people were being treated properly. So she had her own profession, too, but she um, compromised, I think, much of her willpower and everything because Jim was in charge, and uh, there was never any question about that. So she was always kind always thoughtful. I never heard her ever say anything cruel. And uh, I think she really lived and spent much of her time figuring out how to protect her children from Jim and his ego, and maybe even the rest of us. You were in Redwood Valley Uh initially. The group then moved to San Francisco for a while. Did you stay in Redwood Valley during that time? Yes, I stayed in Redwood Valley because I worked at the welfare department and we, you know, we had a number of communes up there and we had their printing um, business was up there and we took care of the bus, um, kind of the bus repair. And so some of the businesses stayed up in Redwood Valley where it was rural and we had property. So I stayed up in Redwood Valley with, uh, after about 1972, at the end of the year, a lot of people who were working strictly for the church moved to Red- to San Francisco and lived in people's temple buildings in San Francisco. But uh, quite a few of us, a hundred or two hundred of us stayed living in Redwood Valley and we had care homes, we had the bus service, we had a number of different other businesses going on in Redwood Valley. So I stayed up there until I left for Guyana. You know, the thing that to me is so confusing about Jim Jones is there's no doubt that he did a lot of good 
in his work, and people like you in his movement also did a lot of good. Did you feel that you were doing some good? I was totally fulfilled. I felt that every day I worked hard enough to make a difference. And so uh, because of all the different things we did, whether it was the soup kitchen or you know, taking people to shop who were disabled or taking care of kids or counseling kids or giving homes to kids who are having a hard time, you know, in their schools in San Francisco, moving them to Redwood Valley to go to school, whatever it was, I felt totally fulfilled and delighted with my life during that time. And I understand that within People's Temple, there was no such thing as sexism. There was no racism, no glass ceiling, that there was a total feeling of camaraderie among the members. Is that what you experienced? I experienced that, but that was really a very phony picture because behind the scenes, uh, Jim had a group of his own mistresses and secretaries who were white. He was white. And so even though he talked about a glass ceiling, and in many ways there was one, I mean, there would never be a rule that a woman couldn't drive a bus because many of the drivers were women. But in his inner circle, there was a very obvious hierarchy and if you were unfortunate enough to be selected to be in that circle, really all of your rights were taken away. Jim monopolized your time and energy and your emotional well-being and everything. So I think that there was an illusion that you could be anything you wanted to be and do anything you wanted to do. And that would be unless you challenged Jim at any level. It sounds like from what you're describing, Jim Jones just treated other people as means to his own end. I think that's totally true. And I think what happened, unfortunately, is that got mixed up with the discipline that we needed to be as really effective as we were in doing community organizing and community work. So he would often allude to, you know, Che Guevara was somebody who went out on his own and worked really hard with people because everybody was focused on doing the work of being a revolutionary. And so what brought brought him down was that one of his members was smoking a cigarette. And so they could find, they had a heat-seeking equipment that could find where he had run into into the rainforest. So often Jim would say, you know, we're as strong as our weakest link. Are you doing all you could do to make this world better, to bring about change? And so he, what was his own personal motivation was linked with, as a good soldier, taking care of business and getting things done, are you doing the most you can do with the fewest distractions about your personal needs? He was the one who set the goal. And really, the goal was his power. But he tied it in to make it look like it was a social cause, when really, it was his ego and him wanting to have all of us listening to his instructions. So he he uh, blurred the line so that he could be the one in charge and continue to expect the most of us. One of the things he said to one of my friends who also survived, in 1972, he told Terry Buford, you know, keep them tired and keep them poor and nobody will ever leave. That was exactly how he played it. And that's basically the condition you were kept in all the time? Yes, and but also... You know, not too fine about being poor because all of our needs were taken care of. So I lived communally. I had, you know, somebody bought my car. I got, they paid my gas, my insurance, my medical care, my clothing. Everything that I needed was provided. But at the end of the month, I'd turn in my check along with everybody else who lived in the commune. We didn't live as if we were poor, but we lived with no surplus. 
So we had $8 a month. It was our own money. But if we ever went into a service with Jim Jones, you know, a lot of us would end up giving the $8 back in the offering. So we had everything provided as it would be in a truly socialist state. But of course, he didn't live that way. And if you ever chose to leave, you would have had nothing. Right. But, you know, I came in with nothing. So in a way, it never, you know, it was kind of a wash. If I had wanted to walk out the door any time, I'd still have everything I came in with, which was my purse. I think that there were a lot of people who donated houses and jewelry and money and things like that to Jim Jones over the year. But I never had it to give when I came in. And so, in a way, I missed that whole kind of interaction that Jim would elicit money from people who had it. Because I never had it, I was never put in that position. And so, I also missed the insight that I would have gained if I had been in a situation where I was manipulated to donate. Now, I want to go back to what you were saying about his inner circle, because it was my understanding that you were on something called the Planning Commission. Is that correct? Yes. Now, was that, okay, so you think of this as like concentric rings and Jim Jones being the very center. Wasn't the planning uh-huh. commission really close to the center? Weren't you the next ring out or was there another more intimate circle of friends and, and trusted allies that he had? First, there was Jim Jones and then there was his circle of mistresses and secretary. And then outside of that, there were his assistant ministers and the people who kept things going like... um Archie Imes and Jack Beam were the assistant ministers. And then, you know, probably his wife and people who were advocates, uh, Mike Prokes, people who were involved in all the decision-making of the more intimate, maybe even illegal things or questionable activities like calling and um, trying to coerce people to stop investigating Jim Jones or things like that. So all of those were, you know, in the inner circles. Planning Commission in a way, was an illusion of importance because the people in the planning commission were either really hard workers or people that Jim wanted to watch or people who were married to people that Jim wanted to watch. So it was a combination. It wasn't just people that um, Jim gave a certain role of respectability. There were many reasons for people to be part of the of the planning commission. And he also played it up so that people who were not on the planning commission often wondered what they had done wrong not to be on it. The illusion that there was power, really what happened in the planning commission is we kind of stripped bare of our illusions. If we made a mistake in something we were doing, it would be often be brought up in the planning commission. If somebody had... Um, acted out or done something that Jim was unhappy about, that might be brought up in the planning commission. And also Jim would like bring up an idea, there'd be a full discussion, and then whatever the decision was made or however the advice was taken, Jim would take ownership of that and then tell the whole congregation that he had come up with this great idea. So our ideas were often checked there, and then Jim took credit for whatever decision was made. So, it, you know, it was a strange body because we it, we could have been hard workers or not, depending on why Jim wanted us closer to him so he could watch us. 
And uh, there were a lot of really hard workers who were never on the planning commission. And some of that is just because of happenstance that white girls who are 22, enough of those. So you wouldn't have any more white girls who are 22. You might take somebody who's black from San Francisco until they had enough of that. You know what I mean? Like there was almost like a quota system of what he needed. And it was not based on purity or uh, dedication or hard work, that was not how you were put on planning commission. So in a way, that was all an illusion that we were people who were closer to the center. We did spend more time with Jim than other people. For the seven years that I was in on the planning commission, say five years in California, we did meet almost every Wednesday night, all night, and then go to work the next morning without any sleep. So that did happen. So, you know, whether that was a favor or not, they made us feel important, but I don't know if, uh, so it kind of played to our egos also that we were important enough to spend the whole night in this conversation with 40 other people and Jim Jones sitting on the floor in some cold building. You know, it reminds me of something I've heard about cult mentality. And one of the things that they will do is try to blur the lines between punishment and reward kind of keep people disoriented. So when you describe staying up all night long with Jim Jones and then having to go to work the next day, that's that's kind of a perfect example of a mixed punishment reward, it sounds like to me. I think that's true. I think that's absolutely true. So let me ask you this. There were up to 7,000 members at the height of the People's Temple is what I've heard. Is that correct? Uh-huh, I think that's true. And only about 100 people were on the planning commission. Yeah, I mean, also, you know, it was weighted heavily for the North. So in Redwood Valley, there were probably um, 40 people from Redwood Valley on the planning commission. Then when he moved to San Francisco, he might add another 40 in San Francisco, but some of the people from Redwood Valley couldn't come down for the planning commission meetings. You know, so there were about, you know, 70 there. And then there might have been 20 from Los Angeles. There were 100 people altogether, but not everybody could always come to every setting. So that's true. The other thing is the 7,000 people who were members. I think that if you're looking at the innermost or the most involved members, there were probably 2,000 at any given time who made it their business to come to every single meeting that Jim had. And then there were 5,000 who would come on a Sunday because it worked or a Wednesday night because it worked. So in a way, there weren't 7,000 dedicated people who were ready to move to Guyana. But Jim's original plan to go to Guyana for, was for Jonestown to be for 600 people. And then in the matter of, you know, one year or so, he had 1,000 people there already. So already more than he had planned for. There's this, I think it's a myth that a lot of these people who join these movements are societal misfits or outcasts. And I've heard that's not the case with Jonestown. I would say that the people who moved into People's Temple and were involved with People's Temple were all people who were dedicated to make a change in the world. They were people who were not satisfied. Like, you know, in a way, I, I've always been a person of privilege. I'm white. My parents were educated. I was getting educated. You know, I could pretty much, I could type. I could walk in almost any place and get a job, which I did. I've always gotten jobs when I applied for jobs. Like, I'm a privileged person. There is not somebody who's racist who says, oh, no, she's white. I'm not going to hire her. So in many ways, I'm privileged. In People's Temple, a lot of people who had that same privilege 
of not having racism held against us, we were able to join and belong. There were people who were not satisfied with that. I didn't want to be a you know college professor. I didn't want to be somebody who didn't have an effect on the world around me. And so whether we were, you know, I would say that both black and white, people who came to people simple were people who said, we have to change the way things are getting done around here. It's not acceptable the way it's going on. I mean, I think that that was the one thing that was in common. People who were willing to sacrifice to make the world better. So it was a very idealistic group. It wasn't people who were looking for, you know, a free meal, a place to work, a place to live. They had no other option. These were people who had, a lot of the time, other options and really just wanted to help people. Absolutely. And wanted to make a difference. We wanted to be working for something that would make our lives better and the lives of other people better. The decision to move to Guyana. There was some article that came out, and I'm sorry I can't remember, that kind of drove his migration down to Guyana. Well, there are a couple of different things going on. First of all, I think that Jim felt that his leadership was always going to be uh, investigated or looked at because there are so many eyes watching him in San Francisco. So I think that fairly early on after moving to San Francisco, he felt like he his best chance at being more than a minister in the United States would be if he went and had some really successful venture in another country where there weren't people watching over his shoulder every minute. So I think he was trying to figure out how could he amass power the fastest, and the fastest way would be if he were in a remote area, had a very successful effort, and then could come back and say, look, this is the kind of leader I am, I can put this together. So I do think that that was in the back of his mind. One of the things that happened in San Francisco is that one of our young members who had come with Jim from um, Indiana at the very beginning, when Jim came in the mid-1960s, one of the young men overdosed on heroin in San Francisco. And so in a way, he used that to say, we have this community. We have tutors, we have teachers, we have doctors, we have all these people, and yet we have members that we can't protect when it comes to walking down the street and buying drugs on the corner. What are we going to do? And he started the conversation. Um, he had visited Guyana in the 1960s, and Guyana had a government that was socialist. And, you know, Jim walked carrying a big flag of money. You know, he had collected a lot of money. And many times third world countries see a group come from the United States with money in their pockets. And I'm sure that Jim greased some hands as we were making that decision. And um, I think that the combination of a socialist government in Guyana and Jim finding it, and it was tropical, and it was English-speaking, and the government, you know, wanted to populate a part of Northwest District where there was a border dispute with Venezuela. I think that there are, you know, many parts of the move to Guyana that just came together and seemed to fit. So we moved to Guyana because the government there was fine with us moving there, and they did see us as somebody coming in with big pockets because Jim had amassed quite a lot of money. So did Jim Jones choose who went to Guyana with him, or was that something that people volunteered for? You know, as I said, his plan was for 600 people to go, and I'm not sure what he thought about that. But once the drums started beating, you know, everybody got their passports, everybody had their passport pictures, everybody started, and then 
as people seemed to need to go, they would be sent over. So there was an early crew of about 35 people. When I moved to Guyana in March of 77, there were 40 people or so living in Guyana. And there were some people who were in Georgetown who were working on um, getting, you know, setting up the kind of the organization. That was the headquarters. And then there were people in Jonestown who were clearing the fields and, you know, leveling things off and putting in the structures and the housing. So there were 40 people. And then every month, 20 or 30 or 40 more people would come. So all of that happened before there was much, um, before there was any discussion of who Jim Jones was. In the summer of 1977, New West Magazine that was published by Rupert Murdoch decided that they were going to come and do an investigation of who was this Jim Jones. Who is this guy who, you know, has people moving to Guyana and now over a hundred? Who was he? He was never vetted. He was put in as a housing commissioner. He had all these things um, going on when Rosalind Carter came to San Francisco. She met with him privately for an hour so he could talk about his programs and things. So there were so many things he did. The newspaper started to want to look into who he was. And so that was really threatening. So after Jim was unable to stop the newspapers from doing the investigations, he said, okay, well, we need to go faster. So he beefed up. And so sometimes there'd be a hundred people would go in one month from San Francisco to Guyana. So with that happening in San Francisco, he rushed everybody there. And I think everybody was surprised at how many people signed up to go. I so mean, he was surprised, and everybody else was too. I don't think there was a way to know in advance how many people would want to go. So they might not have had the infrastructure for so many people. Yeah, absolutely not. And I think, you know, looking back at it, I didn't realize it actually until pretty recently. Um, I love the idea of going to Guyana because I love to travel, and I've been, you know, traveled to other places. And so traveling was something that... I always envisioned doing, but there were people who met the racism every day in San Francisco or met the racism every day in Los Angeles or at the buses, much like we see today when black men are shot by police with no um, follow-up no follow and no really investigations. So people who felt the racism in the United States, when they heard about this village, even in a primitive area, of the Northwest District of Guyana, even with all that, their experience in the United States was that it was racist and we had not moved into a new age where the human rights was taken seriously. I think that that was a very important reason that people said, well, you know what, I'm going to go and take my children out of here. And so that was a part that I don't think I appreciated until more recently that some people were not going to follow Jim Jones or to join Jim Jones as much as get their kids to a safe place. I was always under the impression that the New West article is what was the impetus behind the whole move to Guyana. But you said it really just kind of accelerated. It didn't cause the decision. Right. It, 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 the move to Guyana, had really, the conversation started in 74 and then again in 75. So the New West magazine just prompted everybody to move faster. And so we got a lot of people down to Guyana when Jonestown was not ready. I mean, by the summer of 78, you know, we already had eight or 900 people down there. 
And the community was not ready for that. There wasn't adequate housing. Uh, as it was, you know, Jonestown was never going to be self-sufficient. So we had to buy the food to get into Jonestown to feed people. So, you know, by the by November of 78, we were feeding a 1,000 people three meals a day in the middle of a rainforest that, for the most part, had no sustenance, had no crops that were ready to... um you know, to be eaten by a thousand people three meals a day. Was the cost of this coming out of just the funds of the People's Temple, or were the people back in the States supporting those in Guyana? Well, it was all of that. I mean, money came from everywhere. I mean, there were some people who were on Social Security, so they got their Social Security check. There were, you know, donations taken, and people had services back. In the United States, Marceline and a few other people did rounds to have services back in the United States and took offerings, and that money went into it. So, you know, money was coming from everywhere. People were donating their houses as they left to go to Guyana. So I would say money is coming from everywhere that Jim could possibly peel it off. And so it was going into setting up Jonestown, but it was also going into banks in the in the Caribbean and in different parts of South America so that the money would be at you know at hand if you needed it. So Jim was setting up, you know, money for Guyana but also money in local banks for a rainy day. The reason I ask is because it just entered into my mind during this interview, it hadn't really crossed it before, that one of the pressures that led to the events of November eighteenth might have been financial pressures on Jim Jones. But you don't think that was part of it? Um, I think if he had been rational, then we could see what rational reason he could have it. But we had millions of dollars in different banks in South America. I would think that, you know, a couple of things happened. First of all, Jonestown was never going to be self-sufficient. And Jim just found that out for sure in the summer of 78 when he realized that there was no way that, you know, we had a thousand people there. We probably had another two or three hundred people who would have come to live in Jonestown, who never got a chance to go over there. I bet. So, I mean, we could have had 1,300 people there living in Jonestown. So here we were in a community where there wasn't, the ground had been former rainforest. So it wasn't rich soil. So you couldn't plant enough to feed the 1,300 people the three meals a day. So Jonestown was not self-sufficient. It would have been an expense to see if we could do it. Jim had wanted to go to Russia at one point, but Russia was not interested in him going and setting up his own community within the Russian system in an area that Jim wanted to pick, you know, kind of an elite area. The Russians were not interested in him, you know, taking his whole government with him in charge and moving to Russia. So that wasn't going to happen. Cuba, you know, was too small to handle 1,300 people coming in at that point. And so all of the things that Jim kind of had idealized or thought about, those were not workable. And then on top of that, he was being pressured from the United States that people were saying that people in Jonestown wanted to leave. So it was bringing in more pressure. And he had nine uh, parents in Georgetown or contacting government officials in Georgetown saying that Jim had nine kids there or nine people without prior custodial rights, and including John Stone. So he had these legal issues, and the government of Guyana said for him to kind of chill and not go into Georgetown where they got things resolved. So all of these things are hitting the fan, 
and he's addicted to drugs, and he has another illness that he can't treat because the Guyanese officials have asked him to stay in Jonestown. So all of those things are going on, and then he's kind of falling apart. The two of his secretaries have left. Uh, Debbie Layden had left, and she had been, you know, one of the financial secretaries. So in a way, she knew where all the money was. She knew kind of the deeper secrets than almost anybody else in Jonestown. She had that information. And then um, in uh, October, Terry Buford left with Mark Lane. I mean, we, he had two people leave. So, you know, all of that was going on when he was disintegrating. The one thing that he could have done that he would refuse to do is come back to the United States because he never wanted to be seen as a failure because he couldn't ever say, you know what, we really tried our damnedest. We tried to do everything we could and it didn't work. Let's go back and regroup and figure out what to do. He could never do that. And that was his fatal flaw, really. It's interesting because several years before, I think he'd gone down to Brazil for a couple of years and kind of failed down there and had to come back up to Indiana. Right. I mean, that was his own personal trip, though, and he didn't take much of the many people with him. And uh, I mean, I think that that was kind of an ego driven trip for him anyway. But he had expected that his group would stay in Indiana and stay cohesive and just wait for him to decide to come back. And so, you know, some of the most loyal members did stay, but he, I think he'd lost ground when that happened. But shortly after that, he left Indiana and came out to California. So all of these events that led to the demise of People's Temple and the events of November 18th, you've had to piece together probably in hindsight. You probably didn't know everything that was happening at the time. But there were some allegations, uh, some hints about some disturbing activities and conditions at the People's Temple compound, and I was wondering if I could go through some of those with you and see if any of those match your experience, if you have any insight into them. One of the things that Jim did is he really departmentalized. Like, if he needed to talk to people about the school, he would talk to the teachers and the people who ran the school. If he needed to talk to somebody about money, he would bring in the people who knew about that. So, in many ways, nothing that had to do with the running of Jonestown was public information. And what he would do is he would listen to the BBC and find one nugget of information and then completely blow it out of the water with his imagination and his paranoia. And that was how we found out what was going on in the world, really through his own um, magnification of racism or prejudice or anything else. So I think you're right that so many things were going on and none of us knew the whole picture. And did he always have an enemy? Was it always the same enemy? Were there various enemies that he would bring up from time to time? I know that one of the ways they build cohesion within groups like this is through an external threat. Did you feel like that was constantly being paraded in front of you as a reason not to leave and to keep on working? Absolutely. There's always a we they. And I mean, that's cult behavior also. That, you know, we're the elite. We're the ones who understand. We're the ones who see the big picture. And so we have to get to work because they don't understand. So he very much played on that really from day one, that we were the ones who had to fix things that are just screwed up. So some of the allegations were that the planning commission meetings involved a lot of frank sexual discussion about Jim Jones's exploits. Did that match your experience? Yeah, absolutely. 
But um, what he did, though, he would re-victimize a victim. For instance, if he had somebody, he would say, this person, you know, she thought she was ugly. So I had no choice but to have sex with her and let her know that she's really beautiful. And that, you know, she shouldn't feel that she's not, that she's not, you know, beautiful and sexy. So I had to show her. So here he had sex with somebody, you know, because of his power, that he could choose to do that. And I think that very few people would have the, you know, backbone to say, you know what, no, I'm not interested. I just, I don't think that was going to happen very often. And so he set the person up and then he re-victimized them by saying, and that I did show her, I did show her, you know, a good time so that she could know that she was beautiful. So he would, you know, bring the person up and in a way put them down that they had any need to have sex with them, but make them a victim again. So he did that all the time. A lot of public shaming took place in these meetings, I understand. Yes. I mean, he never wanted to be in a position that anybody was held up next to him so that they could be compared. So anytime he could emasculate a man or he could put somebody down who looked like they might challenge him at any point, he would be sure that that person would be shamed in public. I understand that the Planning Commission was also a disciplinary body and that there was a lot of discipline that took place at these meetings. For example, I've heard that there would be private call-outs or counseling as the first line of treatment when somebody was acting out. But then the next stage, if counseling wasn't working out, there was a, a something called a catharsis at the Planning Commission meetings. Did you ever witness one of these? Yeah, that wasn't just in the Planning Commission meeting because we had that, all of that, you know, kind of church business was taken care of, but it was taken care of at Jim's you know, most personal group that took care, place in the planning commission that took place in our, um, we would have a private meeting in Wednesday nights up in Redwood Valley that we called a family meeting night and people would come up and so there would be discipline. Jim was really the father protector and the father disciplinarian in every setting that was a private setting. So, um, and there was catharsis where people would say, you know, he poured, he bullied me. Uh, he beat me up, he called me a name, whatever went up, that kind of catharsis or confrontation could take place in any of those settings. Not so much in public meetings on the Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, when we had people who were, you know, kind of the outer 7,000 group that were not involved in, you know, the inner workings of People's Temple. But in any of the private meetings, there could be catharsis and people could be confronted for behavior. And then usually Jim Jones would end this catharsis session by hugging the person, comforting them, telling them how much he loved them. Kind of a classic abuse pattern, it really sounded like. I think that there was a classic abuse pattern, but he was not somebody who would hug people. I mean, oh, okay. I think that, I think that um, he might comfort them or, or make sure that whoever the person he called on to be the bad guy was the bad guy. It's more like a, a bad cop, good cop. He would make sure that when everything was said and done, it would look like he stopped further discipline or he stopped any further discussion or he understood the person and understood that they just got a little out of whack and stuff. So he would always want to end up being thought of as the calming part. But really, he stirred everybody up and got everybody else excited and got everybody else you know, agitated, and then he would pretend to be the calm, 
voice of reason. So it wouldn't end up so much, but it's the same principle, the same principle that he was the protector. And so whether he physically hugged somebody, which I don't remember happening at all or very rarely, but he would definitely be the calming influence that stopped it. Yeah, I think the hugging was my addition, but it was my understanding that, you know, nothing happened without Jim Jones' instigation and approval in these meetings. That's exactly right. Nothing happened from, you know, everything that happened the last day in Jonestown on down. Nothing happened that Jim did not initiate. Nobody went beyond his, what he said, to take it any further. He set the tone. I understand also there were public whippings and paddlings. Did you ever witness one of those? You know, I did. Um, one, of the, one of the times it happened was somebody was smoking outside, um, and we didn't smoke or drink. So somebody was smoking, and so that person was paddled. I think it was a lot worse than any of us knew at the time, because once the people were paddled, we never heard or saw any of those consequences. So in a way, if somebody was paddled, and I never heard it even whispered about again, then it wasn't something I focused on. It's not like you heard people talking about it endlessly later on. People just stopped talking about it. And so if I saw somebody spanked or paddled with a a wooden plank or something, and then that stopped and they went away and I saw them every day or every week, somehow I allowed it to be, I allowed myself to think that that was really minimal. The reality was that once people, people were spanked with planks, some people were physically damaged for life. There's a young boy who was part of a family in People's Temple, and he was spanked with a plank, and he had, he left and went to live with a mother. There was a split, uh, you know, father-mother relationship, and he went back and lived with his mother outside of the temple. But to this day, he has back ailments because of the spanking he got with a plank. So it was much more severe than any of us knew at that time. And so that happened um, for about six months in San Francisco. There were spankings like that, and then it all stopped. And apparently, I found out, you know, fairly recently that it was because people started looking into why people were getting hit by planks, and so Jim had to stop it. But it wasn't because he wanted to be a kinder, gentler person. It was just that they couldn't hide it anymore when it was going on. So I think that that's one of the terrible things that did happen under our noses. And, and I, for one, did not, I didn't know how horrible it was, was or how extreme it was. They were probably instructed not to talk about it or complain about it ever. Absolutely. No question about it. And so that was in San Francisco. That wasn't even in Guyana. Right. So that was in San Francisco. Um, in Guyana, um, it, it was never as bad as it was for that six or eight month. It might have even been a year in San Francisco. But in, you know, in Guyana, there were other issues. Like you couldn't be negative. I was brought up on the floor, um, once or twice because they said I was talking too much when I was working and not working hard enough. So what happened to me is I was put on a public services crew and, uh, the public service crew was for people who had done things in the community. That wasn't their best. So either you talk negatively about Jim Jones, you uh, weren't working hard enough, you've been sick too many days in a row, 
you didn't work fast enough. Those kinds of things that just came up with a group of a thousand people working, you know. So we'd be brought up and then put on public services for a couple of weeks or five days or something like that. And so on public services, you would get up before everybody got up, work longer than everybody, eat after everybody else had gotten their food, take the shower at the end of the day and things like that. So you were put on kind of a um, a work crew as a consequence of your behavior. So that was one of the disciplines. That was one of the easier ones. What about these public boxing matches I heard about? Like somebody who was an offender would be forced to box someone who is physically superior to them. Yeah, if it came up that there was somebody who was bullying somebody else. Uh, in a way, Jim was acting like a righteous parent when a child was bullied. So as usual, he took it way beyond the mark. But what he would do is if a kid who was 10 was bullying a kid who was smaller or nine or eight, Jim would have the bully be in a boxing match with somebody two years his senior. So a 12-year-old would box the 10-year-old or a 15-year-old would box the 13-year-old to show him what it felt like to have somebody bigger and bolder you know, box with him. So, you know, I mean, they had boxing gloves on. It was boxing. And so uh, and it, that was one of the disciplines, yeah. Was it a public spectacle? Did it take place in front of a crowd? And, yeah, it took place in our general meetings, and then we moved on. So that might be an event that took 10 minutes or 15 minutes, and they'd all, you know, leave, go get cleaned up, and then the service would continue. Jim was pretending to be the father role. And so for people who had kids who were bullied, you know, he would play up that part that he was a protector. He didn't want kids to be bullied. So, I mean, anyway, here's he was the chief bully, right? But he put himself in a position to not allow a younger kid to be bullied. So, I mean, it's a, it was, um, to, you had to be careful to be able to see through his BS to see what was really going on because he pretended he was a protector when really he set up a bullying situation. You know, yeah. he was in charge and he was calling the shots. When you look at it on one hand, does it seem like everything that happened and that he did now you can see as a way for him to increase his control over the group? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know. My sister saw it day one. It took me a long time to see that that he was like abusing really all of us. And that in a way, you know, that's an illness that spread. Like we were infected by the same disease. His theory was the end justified the means. And really for the use of those in people's temple, more and more, I would buy into that thinking that, you know, when we were settled, when we had enough food, when we didn't have to work so hard, when we had all the housing we needed, all these things, when all these things were taken care of, as we were like setting up, moving from being a primitive place, refuge in the rainforest, to being, you know, all kind of a community that was built and able to take on other things. I thought we could fix all the things in our in the group there that couldn't be fixed as we were working so hard. I mean, and so, you know what I mean? I missed the whole point about civil liberties being trod over and people not being able to leave until it was time for that. It seems like almost every utopian dreamer ever has said, you know, well, we only have to do these things as a contingency while we're living in this, whatever it is, sin-soaked world or this world that's fighting against us. And when the great day comes, there's going to be peace and harmony and all this will be done away with. Yeah, I think that's true, except that 
like for me, the people that I lived with in Guyana, that was my adopted family. And so, um, I mean, it's, it is really scary. And, you know, to this day, I mean, I'm not a dumb person. And yet so much went on right in front of me that I didn't identify as abuse. That it's just, it is really scary. I mean, it certainly has taught me a lesson, but you know, I survived all 917 other people besides Jim Jones did not survive because, you know, we were all too quiet at the time when we should have stopped it. Now, talking to you now, it's clear you're very intelligent, you're articulate, you are very passionate about social justice. And so what you say really is kind of a warning. It, it really is sobering to think that somebody like you could watch these things happen and they didn't really, didn't really register as warning signs to you. That's right. Like I was, I was so um, focused on, I wanted the community to survive so much. You know, I wanted the community to survive as an integrated role model. In a way, like I, like I wanted everybody to do their best work. If somebody was frivolous or messing around or stealing from the other people in Jonestown, I mean, I just hated that. I hated that. Anything else was going on besides um, people doing their best and trying to live together. So it's just one of those weird things. And then from that, it crosses over into being totally intolerant of human differences. Or, you know, if somebody was stealing, okay, so what is it you're stealing? You're stealing a watch. Why are you stealing a watch? Because for whatever reason you feel that you should have a watch or, you know what I mean? Or whatever. But I just became as hardened by people who are not doing their best to a ridiculous degree. Or at least your sense of justice was somehow fulfilled by seeing these punishments. It wasn't necessarily something that you objected to. When I saw people not doing their best, I took it as a personal insult. And in a way, that's what Jim handed down to us that, if you were not dedicated enough to do your best, and it was an insult to him. And so then we all kind of took that, that like pride of ownership of doing a good job. And then the other hand of that is, so they weren't doing their very best job. How that's horrific. Part of it with um, Jim being mentally unbalanced and as somebody that was set up to be kind of the best and the purest. I mean, we, a lot of his insanity trickled into us. And so, the closer you were, the more apt you were to be uh, infected. Okay. I also understand that there were times, and you've hinted at this already, I understand that there were times where the group took criminal prosecution into its own hands. So there was a case of a man who was accused of child abuse who was beaten so badly with a hose that he had to be catheterized for weeks afterward. Do you remember uh, hearing anything about this? You know, I do remember that. I didn't know about the catheterized, but um, I do know that Jim would never send anybody out for anything they did. So when there was a child, a, a pedophile was in Jonestown. And so um, he was beaten because Jim would never say, okay, we're going to send him out of the community, which would have been the logical and obvious thing to do. Jim said, no, we have to be our own governance because we don't want to send anyone into the prison system. We'll just monitor him here, which, you know, has never worked ever anywhere. So, I mean, and I don't know in 1970s if it was quite as, quite as apparent that um, it didn't work to monitor somebody. But anyway, in Jonestown, Jim said, you know, if somebody was doing something we didn't like, we'd have to discipline them, get them their attention and handle it ourselves. 
And so that's what he did. So there was never a time that anyone ever thought that they would be sent out to, you know, to authorities outside of Jonestown. Jim wanted to handle everything, every infringement in Jonestown. And this was just another matter of control to ensure that he could maintain his petty tyrantship over the area? Again, he was looking to be like the calming voice, right? So he'll take care of this person, even though he's a pedophile. So he was trying to be the voice of reason, even though he incited everybody. And also, I mean, it was to demonstrate he had had total control of everything. So, you know, his decision was never disobeyed. And you know, his thought process was given full credibility. And so all of that was true. And so, I mean, I think, and also he didn't want to look like a failure. He didn't want to have somebody leave, thrown out of Jonestown and go back and say, oh yeah, they didn't know how to handle me. So they sent me out. So he couldn't really take on any of that. So, I mean, I think he wanted to always appear strong and righteous and never look at a failure and never look at a defeat. So he couldn't allow the defeat of having somebody who was a pedophile under his nose get out to the greater community. So there was one episode that you must not have witnessed because you didn't go to San Francisco, but I heard about a time where a shot rings out while the group's in San Francisco. Jim Jones clutches his chest, blood sprouts out on his shirt. Did you hear about this? Well, there was a time in Redwood Valley that that happened. And I also, by the way, did go to San Francisco every weekend. But um, so he was shot as he was in the parking lot in Redwood Valley, he said. And for a while, he kept the um, shirt that had the blood stain on it around him in Redwood Valley. And then he came back. I think that I believe it was like on a Sunday morning. And then he came back to the service Sunday afternoon and said he had healed himself or something. So um, there were times that he would create these kinds of distractions. So that supposedly happened in Redwood Valley. Once when he was in Jonestown, he had somebody go into the bush and fire a gun to make people think that there was somebody out in, outside in the wilderness shooting into the camp. But that was all something he staged. You know, Jim was... A lot of times when Jim behaved like that, I said, really, he was a thespian. He would do things in services and before and after services and in different venues to make sure that people knew that there was drama going on, that there were enemies outside to be feared, um, that people even had guns and they were willing to attack him. He'd talk about racist threats he got over the phone and different things that went on. So I think that the we, they... It wasn't enough to just talk about we, they, he had to demonstrate that there were actually people with guns who were gunning for him outside. Did most of the people at People's Temple believe that event was legitimate, authentic? Because I heard that the dogs ran one way toward the shooter, and Jim Jones said, no, no, the shot came from over here and redirected their, their search to a different direction. They asked him about it later, and he said something like, well, I wanted to show mercy on the shooter. And I heard there was some skepticism about that. You know, I don't remember the situation well enough, but what I found what I found a lot is that there's stories that come up that either I don't know about, I never heard about, or don't sound uh, quite right. And if I don't know about something firsthand, then I'm reluctant to bring it up because there's so much that we know firsthand. You know, we know 
without any question that on November 18th, 918 people died. We knew that there are all these things we know and to speculate about what might have happened. Did it really happen? Did he really say that? I, I'm not really convinced that there's anybody alive at this point who was there who saw it and witnessed it. But they might be. I just don't know. So I don't know what to say about them. Okay. I, yeah. if, if it happened, and I mean, I can believe that that would happen. I can believe that Jim would, you know, say anything. I do believe all of that. Okay. You know, so that could happen, but I don't know those details. So I want to quote from something that Terry wrote. It says, quote, there were loudspeakers all over the compound, and Jim Jones' voice was on them almost 24-7. He couldn't be talking all the time, but he'd tape what he said and then play it back all day long. And the rule was that we couldn't talk when Jim Jones was talking. So on the loudspeakers, he'd suddenly call out, white knight, white knight, get to the pavilion, run, Mm -hmm. your lives are in danger. Everyone would rush to the pavilion in the middle of the encampment. Did you experience that? Yeah, that happened a lot. What did they entail? Uh, Usually what would happen, um, I think the easiest way is to give you one example. I mentioned before that there are nine different custody battles going on with between Jim and some relatives of people who were in Jonestown. And so nine people had come forward and had contacted the Guyanese government saying that Jim had people in Jonestown and he didn't have authority to do it. There were custody issues. There were young children mostly or foster children or some somehow there were people who had issues and Jim didn't have legal status. So these nine people had contacted the government of Guyana. So what Jim said is that the government of Guyana or the militia or the Guyanese Defense Force was going to come through the rainforest, through the forest, into Jonestown and take all of our children, all of our children. So he never, I never heard him say anything about nine custody issues. What he said was that the Guyanese government was allowing the the military to come in and take our children. So he would say, white night, white night, white night, and everybody would go and pick up a hoe or a shovel or a you know, whatever piece of equipment they had, and we would circle the inner part of the pavilion area or circle around the camp where most of the buildings were. And we would stand there in a circle around um, the inner part of Jonestown because Jim said that they were going to come for our children. So, and we would stand there and he would have an update and he would talk on the loudspeaker saying, we're not going to allow them to come in and get our children. And so he would drone over and over. So, That did happen. And then finally, maybe it would be three in the morning. Maybe it would be, you know, at seven the next morning, or maybe it would be for two hours. Whatever his call was, he'd say, okay, so they've decided not to come tonight. We, you know, our spies have let us know that they're not going to come tonight. So you can all go back to sleep or go back to eat or whatever. And then a lot of times after an event like that happened, he would say, you know, so you can go wash up, and when you wake up, we'll have the biggest and best breakfast ever because you've all been so vigilant. So he created that emergency. It turns out, when I was in Guyana in March, it turns out that I did meet people who were working with the military at that time who said that they had first been asked to go into Jonestown to get those nine children. So there actually was a plan afoot to come into Jonestown and retrieve the kids who had been, you know, taken to Jonestown without authorization. 
Well, I just found that out in the last, you know, six months. But what it seemed to me was that Jim did hear that maybe there was some issue with them coming for the nine children, but he wasn't going to let nine children go because, again, that would look like deceit. So instead of saying they want these nine children that I don't have authority to even have here, instead of doing that, he said, they're going to come for all of our children, which was a third of the community. And he had us gather around for a white night. There were different times when I was in Jonestown that he would say, okay, there's this emergency coming up. They're going to come for our children. Or there was a shot from outside of the, it's not, I don't know, compound doesn't really talk about, that's not really accurate, but from outside of our village, there would be a shot and he'd say, okay, there's a sniper out there trying to kill me. Let's show them how strong we are because they can't kill all of us and we'd have a white knight. You know, some things like that would go on and he would create an emergency and then have us demonstrate our loyalty by doing these lines around the inner circle. I was under the, the impression... Thing, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, as you said, the other thing is that Jim was on the loudspeaker almost 24 hours a day, and that's true. He would take... Any time he spoke, he would tape it. And then later even if he didn't feel like talking or he was too stoned or whatever to talk, he would play these tapes on the loudspeakers. So that did happen. Um, Because my job was to work out in the field, I was away from the speakers. And so it didn't impact my life. But, you know, once everything was over and people started talking more freely about what was going on, I really didn't even find out that it was 24 hours a day until after everything was over, because I wasn't in, you know, within the area that the loudspeakers could be audible. But he would expect you to just stop talking and listen to everything he had to say, no matter how many times he played the tape. If he was talking, then your behavior would be to listen to him and not have conversations, which he did to control the kind of conversations you might have with your coworkers. Wow. Did he ever just sound incoherent to you, just completely off his rocker? You know, I did not pick up on that. Even like the tapes and the videos that have come out from when Congressman Ryan was in the in Jonestown, he's so obviously incoherent, but I didn't pick up on it. But one of the other survivors was telling me one day that she was listening to Jim talk and she said he sounded like he was either really, really sick or really, really stoned, but he was just totally inarticulate. So she did hear it once or twice, but I never did. I see. I never you know, paid attention to that part. So at one of these white nights, uh, Terry Buford alleges that people brought out trays of Flavor Aid or Kool-Aid or whatever it was. They drank it. They were told that they had just consumed cyanide and that they were going to die. And then she says, you know, after a while, everybody's wondering why they weren't dead. And only after the fact did he tell them, no, you, you're not going to die. Go home. You've done great tonight. Did you experience any of these kind of sadistic drills? No, I never did in Jonestown, but when we were in Redwood, in uh, San Francisco and we were at Ben Franklin High School or I don't know, middle school, whatever it was, we were at Ben Franklin and the Employment Commission was meeting there on the stage after one of our meetings. And Jim had handed out, you know, what seemed like juice to everybody. And that was the first because we never had any food in PC meetings. But um, he handed out a juice and then after we all drank it, you know, we're sitting there waiting for the meeting to start. He said, okay, so you all just had poison and you're all going to die because we need to make a statement of revolutionary suicide. So he said that. And then he had shills that were part of the planning commission group 
who fell off their chairs and said, okay, we're all going to die now. So that was in 1973 or something like that. And I was in that session, but I thought that was Jim, again, being a thespian. And I looked around, the people who fell all fell kind of gracefully so that nothing got hurt. Nobody bumped their heads and nobody, you know, they kind of slid and it didn't, because it didn't look real to me, I didn't take it seriously. And so I certainly didn't give it the credit I should have when it took place. Yeah, I thought it was like unrelated. I had no idea that he was just kind of getting us ready, taking us closer to having it happen. Just an object lesson. Yeah. And also, you know, so much of what Jim did was drama. I am convinced that he really wanted everybody to be in every one of his meetings. So if we had a meeting on Wednesday night, Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday, he'd want to do something in every meeting that if you went there, you'd feel bad that you missed it. You know I mean, because otherwise, why do you want to go someplace four nights? You have the same guy sitting in front saying the same things. Why would you go four nights a week? when your life was going on around you. So I think that one of the things he tried to do is do something dramatic at every meeting so that people would feel, you know, encouraged to come so they wouldn't miss it. I mean, I that's what I thought with the, you know, the drink at the planning commission meeting. And with so many of the things he did, I felt that he was doing it just to create that, um, the attraction that people wanted to come and see what he was going to do next. Well, I want to move to the main November 18th events, but before I do, I have to ask one question that takes this whole tragedy out of the realm of just an atrocity and also gives it the air of farce. What is this Mr. Muggs I've heard of? Oh, he was our chimpanzee. And uh, in Indiana, Jim said that he saved this chimpanzee from having a lot of tests done on him. So from Indiana, he brought Mr. Muggs to, to Redwood Valley. So he was a chimpanzee that grew large. I mean, standing up, you know, it was probably a good four and a half feet or five feet tall or more. And so we had Mr. Muggs in Redwood Valley, and then we moved to Guyana. We had him in the middle of Jonestown in a cage. And so Jim would take him out, and Joyce Touche would take him out. But we all interacted with him. He was, you know, it was almost like having a family pet that everybody could get along with. So one time I was in the Redwood Valley and I was doing security around Jim's house. And so I got there and um, Mr. Muggs was out and the security cat cottage was on top of Muggs cage. So I had to walk you know, around Muggs cage and go up the steps and go into the cabin. And so I had a banana and apple so I could stay awake. And so as I walked by Muggs, Monks just sat there and gazed at my banana, like just, you know, like in such awe, like he, it had his full attention. And so as I kept walking, he kept following along, looking at my banana. So finally I said, well, you know, shoot. So I gave him the banana. And so he took my banana and he went into his little cottage and came out with five bananas. So he just manipulated me out of my banana, <laughs> but he had a whole cottage of his own bananas. Kind of a little understudy to Jim Jones there. (laughs) That's right. And so, I mean, he was just, you know, I mean, chimpanzees are very wise and smart. You know, he stayed with us until the very end. And there are many sad things about November 18th. But, you know, he was also shot in his cage. I mean, he couldn't be left there. I mean, there was no one to take care of him. So 
I mean, so he was shot also on that day. They didn't put Mr. Muggs in a beret and dark glasses and have him sit next to Jim Jones while he was preaching, did they? Um, you know, I never saw that one thing, but there are many pictures of Jim holding Muggs uh, and Jim in his dark glasses and hat and stuff, holding Muggs or walking with him, holding hands and stuff. So there are a lot of pictures of Jim with Mr. Muggs and other people with Mr. Muggs. So he wasn't a critical part of anything that happened, just a pet. Yeah, but I mean, an important pet, I'd say. Okay, so how were you prepared? Were you prepared in any way for the visit of Leo Ryan? In Jonestown, everybody was working really hard. You know, the 910 of us that were farm workers or cooks or seamstresses or soap makers or all these things. So we were working really hard. And I think that Jim had a group of uh, probably 10 or 20 people who knew what was going on back in the United States. So on the summer of, of uh, 1978, Jim started hearing that they were going to have some kind of a congressional investigation of Jonestown. Because when Debbie Lane left Jonestown and went back to the United States, she went right to Congress. She was written up in the congressional record as saying, you know, you need to get into Jonestown. People want to leave. Jim won't let them leave. People are beaten. All these things are going on. And he's going to, I don't know if she said he's going to kill people, but by the time Terry Buford left, then the word was getting out that there were, you know, there were intentions of what was going to happen in Jonestown. So um, what happened in San Francisco is that people started saying, okay, so what's going on? And finally, um, Congressman Ryan got involved in the discussion. There's a group called the Concerned Relatives that was headed up by two former Temple members, Deanna and Mert Myrtle. And they changed their names to Al and Jeannie Mills. And so they had started getting together with family members of people who were in Jonestown. And there were family members who felt that what was going on in Jonestown wasn't supervised enough and that Jim was, you know, coercing people to stay and threatening people and a lot of different things. So they just wanted to have somebody come down and see Jonestown and see if their loved ones were being held um, without being able to leave. So the concerned relatives got involved. Debbie Layton was involved. There are other people who joined, who didn't join uh, concerned relatives, but who spoke up. Grace Stone, different ones who said, you know what, there's more going on in Jonestown than we know, and we do need to find out because people are at risk. So Congressman Ryan was persuaded to come into Jonestown. So he said, okay, well, I'm going to go check it out. So he contacted Jim over the summer, and Jim said, no, you're not invited. People kept talking to Congressman Ryan. And he said, well, I am going to come because some of these people were really my um, in my congressional district. So I did represent them. So I am going to come. So he started putting pressure on Jim and on the guy in his government. And Jim said, no, you can't come. And so until the very end, Jim was saying, you can't come. In Jonestown, most of us were just working. And we were not kept informed about how that progressed. At the end of October, uh, Jim called me to his cottage and he said, you know, I'd like you to go back into Georgetown. Can you behave and, you know, do your job there? And I said, yeah. So at the end of October, I was sent from Georgetown to live in, in Georgetown. And I was buying supplies and picking up people at the airport and doing all the things that, you know, people did in Georgetown running the place. 
So I was in Georgetown during the last few weeks before Congressman Ryan came. And then the basketball team came from Jonestown, and they were going to compete with the Guyanese team. And some other people were there. Um, around the 16th, uh, Ryan did arrive in Georgetown, and he came to the house where about 50 of us were living. So we were living in in uh, Georgetown, and he came over the back cement fence and came in and shook our hands. And said, you know, I'm Congressman Ryan, how are things? And Jim had set up, really, that all the people who were in Georgetown were people who loved it. So when I came into Georgetown, I replaced somebody who might who might have said, well, you know, I don't really like it much, but Jim won't let me leave. He took all those people out of Georgetown and sent them back to Jonestown, and they stacked Georgetown with people who were the zealot, like I was. How far away was Georgetown from Jonestown? Georgetown was 24 hours by boat. Oh, wow. That's a long ways away. Yeah. It's a long ways away, so you didn't go in for the day. There were flights, and but the flights depended on if, it, if there was no monsoon or, you know, a big storm or if the pilot felt like going or if it was Tuesday and Thursday. I mean, it was kind of unpredictable if you could fly out if you were going on the public transportation. So we had our own boat, and actually my job was to fill the boat with food to send it to Jonestown. So... I would fill the boat, and it would go up 12 hours up the ocean, 12 hours in the interior rivers, get to Port Kaituma, be offloaded, and then it would turn around and come back. And by the time it came back, I had to be ready to fill it again so I could send it back up. So that was one of my jobs, I mean, along with other people, because there were 50 of us. So we all had big jobs in Georgetown also. So when Ryan came over, he was going to fly into uh, Port Kaituma. So he had tried to rent planes. Turns out Jim had hired all the planes, all the private planes that could have gone from Georgetown into Port Kaituma and booked them for three days so that he, he tried to stop Congressman Ryan from going into Jonestown. So I didn't know that until you know much later, but he tried everything he could to not have Ryan show up at the gate. Ryan just moved into a hotel and said, okay, well, I'm going to wait him out. Rather than just throw bad money you know, more money into it, Jim canceled that plan or stopped, you know, trying to tie up all the airplanes. And then Congressman Ryan flew into Jonestown, into Port Kaituma, and got to the gate, and Jim let him come into Jonestown. But I would say that there's only a group of maybe 20 at the most who knew that Congressman Ryan was going to be actually visiting Jonestown, because Jim did everything he could to stop the trap. So you didn't feel anything ominous about meeting Leo Ryan? Well, Jim did not want anybody to oversee what was going on. Like, any time somebody came from the Guyanese government, everything was staged so that... And, you know, first of all, Jonestown was absolutely amazing. If you see pictures of what we accomplished in two or three years, you know, a thousand people living and being fed three meals a day in 52 cottages and five dormitories, and, you know, extensive gardening and all these um, cottage industries of sewing and woodwork and everything. I mean, in three years, we did an amazing amount of organization and setting up. So anybody who came into Jonestown would be amazed at how much we had accomplished in that three years. I mean, some people build a house and it takes them a year or two. We built housing for a thousand people in three years. And sidewalks and electricity and 
you know, public speaking system and all of that. So Jonestown was amazing. So we had visitors a lot, but nobody who wasn't invited came into Jonestown. So here's Congressman Ryan showing up at the gate saying, you know, and I'm a representative of the U.S. government. I have concerns. I would like to see what you're doing. I came here as a friend. I'm not your, you know, I'm not uh, somebody who's going to attack you. I would just like to see what you're doing. So he came to Jonestown and uh, Jim finally let him in with some of the concerned relatives um, who had family in Jonestown. And so that night there was a huge program and Congressman Ryan stood up and said, you know, I can, I'm just amazed that you did all this in just a couple of years. It's amazing. And I know many of you love it here. And I just appreciate everything that you've put together. And then when he stopped speaking and he started walking out of the pavilion to go to his cottage, people started passing notes to the media and to people in the group saying, help me. I want to get out of here. I need to go. You need to take me with you. Don't believe Jim if he says, you know, you can, I'll leave next week. He's not letting us leave. Help, help me get out of there. And that's, in a way, that's when the whole tide turned. How did he um, find you know, out people were passing these notes? I mean, what tipped him off? Well, you know, in Jonestown, really, it was very much like under Nazi Germany. Children were talking about parents. If somebody, if a kid saw somebody pass a note to the media, he'd scream, look, she's passing a note to him. She's giving him a note. And so people just turned on each other and told, uh, you know, yelled out that people were passing notes to the media. So it was really apparent right away. And then as the night went on in the morning, more people passed notes to the media saying, help me get out of here. I guess I wonder what Jim Jones thought he would accomplish by killing Leo Ryan. Do you think he planned to kill him? Or was that just a horrible, unfortunate situation that got out of control? I, I've had discussion with some other survivors. You know, My feeling is that it wasn't until things turned that night that they decided that they had to kill Ryan and kill everybody in Jonestown. Other people that I've talked to think, you know, it was probably a plan that had been going on 10 days or so with this small inner group of people who just kept a secret and wouldn't tell anybody, but that, you know, it was in the planning stage. For one thing, Jim was incoherent at that time. So it's possible that he a week or two earlier, he had been not quite so incoherent, and he had started the planning stages. Or it could be that his mistresses and secretaries put it together, and he was just too out of it to have any input in it. It's just really hard to know those last few days, and people who knew, they were the ones who died. And so, you know, there's not, I don't know that there's an accurate way to know who knew what when. Um, the thing in Jones, the thing about people's temples, hardly anything happened at the split second. Everything was planned. Everything was delegated. You know, even passing out the poison and the syringes for the children, all that, every, every, everything had to be organized to get it ready, to have it go off so that, you know, within three hours, a thousand people were dead. So everything was organized. Nothing was um, left to the last minute. So if they planned that night, then they must have planned all night to have every detail ready. And, or, you know, so I just don't know when the planning took place. I do know that Jim, Jim would never want to look a failure. 
And he felt strongly, and he let us know strongly that if anybody left Jonestown, that that would ruin the reputation of Jonestown for trying to be the role model, you know, dynamic and integrated community. So none you know, of us he would consider that a lot. A, a bigger failure than he'd expect. <laughs> well, none of yeah. us want to be seen as a failure, but why? I mean, what was it about Jim Jones? Well, I mean, you know, he had a narcissistic personality disorder. He did feel that without him, nothing rolled. Like, he was the essential, the one essential key part of Jonestown. So, say, for instance, if he was ever found wanting, like he wouldn't let people go, so he was taken to court, he was put in jail, anything like that, he did feel that if he was ever not part of Jonestown, it would fold. And he made sure as much as he could to do that by demeaning anybody who was any kind of competition and by, you know, like never having somebody challenge him ever in public. And so what he did is he created a world that with him on drugs, really dying of this fungal infection or some kind of infection, less and less able to cope every day. I do think that there was a part of him that even more than, you know, Jonestown not being self-sufficient and all that, he knew his health was going downhill. He refused to give up his power to, because at one point there, there was an offering of having a triumvirate take over power from Jim, and he absolutely refused. said, no, 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 we're not doing that. There's no triumvirate. I'm in charge of Jonestown. Since he wasn't going to give up by, you know, like, like Father Divine did, passing the mantle on to another person. He wanted his name always the one associated with Jonestown. He didn't want to be simply the founder and then somebody else took over so there was another name attached to Jonestown. So, I mean, I think all that, and with his health going downhill, I think he felt that, you know, Jonestown couldn't exist without him. That was his ego. And that since he was dying anyway in this really formidable threat of the U.S. government coming in to see things and people streaming out um, that it would be better for everybody to die than to be left in his disgrace. So when did you become aware of what happened and what did you hear had happened? Um, so one other point about that, though, is that when people actually got on the truck to go with Ryan, there were only like 13 people out of a 1,000 who wanted to leave. So speaking of a total overreaction, right, we had like 13 or 15 people out of a 1,000 who wanted to leave this primitive place where we were living in Jonestown. So most anybody else could roll with that and say, okay, so, you know, 1% of the people want to leave or, you know, 2% of the group would want to leave. But for Jim, that was, he couldn't have any, not one person, one person would have been too many wanting to leave with Ryan. Um, so then when Ryan went to the airstrip and Jim sent the gunman after him to shoot him and as many other people as they could shoot at the airstrip, about that time, somebody in the radio room called a coded message around to Georgetown, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and Redwood Valley and said, you know, everybody in Jonestown is dying or dead, and it's time for revolutionary suicide. It was a coded message, but it got to us in Georgetown, and um, the person who was on the radio was Sharon Amos. She was the one answering the radio call 
And I was the one with the car. I was in the house. And she sent me across town to get Jimmy and Stephen Jones, who were on the basketball team, and a few other people. So I went across town and got Jimmy and Stephen and a few others. And when I got back to the house, they went upstairs and had a meeting with Sharon. And Sharon explained that everybody in Jonestown was dead or dying and that we had to do the same thing in the Georgetown house and that people were doing it in San Francisco and Los Angeles and Never Valley. So she didn't tell the whole house. She only told, you know, probably five people that that was the instruction. And Stephen Jones is 19 and Jimmy was 20. And they said, absolutely not. We are not following that instruction. It doesn't matter. And then Stephen tried to figure out if there was any way for him to fly out to Jonestown to stop it. But there is no way. It was too late to get out to Jonestown in time. But he said, absolutely not. And we're not even telling anybody at this house. We're not. We're going on as usual. And then Stephen got on the phone to call San Francisco and Los Angeles and Red Valley saying, if you get an instruction from Jonestown, just disregard it. We're not doing that. So it's all over. So don't listen to anything. And then the radio went farther because there was nobody in Jonestown to be on the radio. And the rest of us in the house, the 50 of us that lived in the house in La Maha Gardens in Georgetown, we went about our business. We all had places to be that night. And when we came back, the guy in his defense force had taken over the house and they had us all sit in the living room. And while we were there, they brought out the body bags of Sharon Amos and their kids. And that was the first most of us knew anything about any of it, knowing that Sharon had gotten the message and she had killed her three children and herself. In Georgetown. In Georgetown. So she was the only one who killed herself, only because Stephen stopped it by not even having letting us know. So if someone else had received the message, your outcome could have been different. It's impossible to know. I mean, there's so many different things that could have gone on, but... It was no accident that Sharon was on the radio because, you know, Jim knew it was going to be an explosive day. So she made it her business to be on the radio that day and to be ready for his call. Because just like he had said, you know, the people in Georgetown up, he set her up in charge of the radio while she was there. So in your opinion, and I'm just going to ask you point blank, how could Jim Jones because that's essentially what it boils down to, is one person, one cult of personality. How could he have convinced, and let's just ignore the suicide part of it, because, you know, adults commit suicide, there's the Heaven's Gate cult or whatever. I'm not saying that that's not a horrible tragedy, because it really is. How could he convince parents to kill their children? You know, I think that he strategized what he needed to say. And so, I mean... That that's a a bigger question than you might think. First of all, people followed him thousands of miles because he was, they thought, the most humanitarian person, the most inclusive person, the person who gave them a way out from living in a racist society. So, first of all, they were in Jonestown because of Jim's inspiration to set up a community that was multiracial. So whatever the reality was, that was the thinking. However, it played out in Jonestown being primitive and difficult. So that was one thing. Then when Jim was talking to them, you know, in the death tape, he said, you know, you can't go back home. You've co-conspired 
You've conspired with me to kill a congressman. So you're all going to court. You're all going to be in trial as co-conspirators. So when you go back, your family doesn't want to have anything to do with you because you've killed a congressman. You can't go back to where you were. You've given me your houses. You can never go back to the way it was before. And you're going to go to court and your children are going to be taken away from you and put in the foster system in San Francisco because you're going to be felons. And you can't get jobs. You can't go back. So, you know, he went on about that, about how they were going to have to face court time because the congressman was killed on Jonestown, say. And then, you know, he went on further to say, you know, and you're going to be back in a country that didn't want you in the first place. You're going back with, you know, a record and this reputation hanging over your head. You need to make a statement and say that you don't want to live that way. So he talked like that, and he said, and you have no resources. You have no money. You've given me all your money. You've given me your houses. You've given me everything you have. You can't even start back where you left off. And your family doesn't want to, won't know what to do with you, how to help you. And so after he talked to these exhausted people for hour after hour after hour, then while he's got the, the adults in the crowd listening to him, that's when his secretaries and mistresses went around the outskirts and started giving the the syringes of the you know the flavor aid to the children and who were sitting around the outside. So the children were already dying. So it wasn't that each parent gave their own child the poison. By the time they realized that Jim was planning to kill everybody, the children were already dying because the mistresses and secretaries. And nurses had gone around starting with the children and giving them the, the squirt of the liquid. It's just so hard to hear this, and I'm sure it's hard for you to speak about it. If there's anything we can learn, is I mean, is there any take-home? Well, I mean, I have lots of take-homes. First, never believe anything that somebody says unless you continually keep your eyes open to see if they're you know, behaving in the same manner. Are they behaving as if that's true? And also, you know, when you have somebody who has who gives you no recourse if you have a difference of opinion or, you know, you want to do something else, then, you know, you should get away from that person. Why would you stay with that person? And it's also, I mean, like Jim's ego, like I bought into that we were there because we had a, a mission, a human rights, you know, a mission and a way to accomplish making the world better. but you know, as I've learned from Jim Jones and from other people since then, when you have a leader, a leader becomes corrupt so easily. And uh, I used to say a lot of times, you know, that the old saying that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But a friend of mine said, you know, there's certain people drawn to power and they're already corrupted or, you know, in the position to be corrupted anyway. It's not that a good person with strong beliefs and character is going to necessarily be corrupted by power. But the people who go seeking out power, they're the ones you have to watch out for. And really from day one, from when Jim first saw the first minister in Indiana sitting in front of a crowd, a congregation of a thousand people, Jim said, you know, that's the job I want. I want to be in charge of a thousand people's lives. Not that I want to spread the word of Christ or I want to be a God-fearing man, teaching people about the Bible, that was just dressing. He just said, I want the position of being in front of a thousand people 
with everybody paying attention to exactly what I say and do. And so from day one, he wanted that power. And so much of what he presented over the years in People's Temple was just a sham, his public persona. Because behind the scenes, you know, as we reflect back and can like look at it with more objectivity, at least for me, it was so apparent. There are so many clues and flags along the way that it's just almost unbelievable that it wasn't obvious from day one. So you just can't, you can never let up. Like, I was really happy in People's Temple. And so after I checked out Jim and his family and what he living in and all that, for the first couple of years when I met him and planning commission everything, then I just stopped watching. And I just completely lost my, you know, in a way my sense of self. I was in the sense of community. And so I just wasn't paying attention enough to see the direction it was going. And also, you know, the issue about suicide, when I first came back, and probably for many years, I thought, well, it was murder with the children. That was a third of Jonestown. It was murder for the seniors because probably most seniors who had made the trek over to Jonestown would not consider it an option to come back and make that same journey coming back. I could, you know, that I think was murder. That was murder, that they wouldn't be doing that. And then I thought maybe that the middle third, which were the kind of worker bees, that they would be the ones who um, committed revolutionary suicide. But now, you know, I believe it's all murder. It's all murder because we were fed lies one by one, methodically, every day, every minute, in every setting. We were fed the lie that you couldn't go back. And so after, you know, the years and the hard work in Jonestown, with Jim saying, oh, yeah, you can't go back, you can't go back, you could never go back, it'll never be the same, the United States is getting worse, people eventually did, did buy that. And the other thing is that I think that Jim made a concerted effort. In Jonestown, we had a number of families. So we might have 20 families that had, you know, four or more people in Jonestown. And so in each of those family units, in some as many as 30, he would make sure that in each of those family units, he helped one person particularly to get one person out of jail or one person off of drugs or one person the medical care that they desperately needed or one person housed when they had no resources or something. So he had done some beyond the norm with somebody in each of those family units. So people in that whole family would trust him and say, oh, remember what he did for Joe? Remember how kind he was with Joe and he got Joe whatever he needed and stuff? He had done like kind of personal favors to obligate or to, you know, ask for loyalty from different family members. He wasn't a stranger coming to a, to the front of a stage that nobody heard of or knew. He was somebody who had shaken hands and, and talked to and done all these things, all these years. He had been a personal friend and role model or, you know, a hero in a lot of the family. So he was like somebody who, whose judgment you already trusted. So with all of that, and the people were exhausted, and they saw that he was exhausted, he just, you know, took it over the edge. 
you've pointed out several factors that I'd never considered that really help explain to me what transpired, because it seems inexplicable. You know, if you hear the short version, then you really can't say, I I have no idea how this could even happen. And you, you can get into the idea of judging people. That's right. I understand that you have a memoir called Jonestown Survival, An Insider's Look. And that was published when? In 2010. And I'm working on my second book this summer. Oh, I hope to have it finished by um, the middle. And uh, the new book is called Unintended Victims. Because those of us who survive, you know, we have had families. In a way, our families have had to help us through the survival process. Um, Today, one of the calls I got at five was for somebody who's in prison and his parents were survivors. And now he's in prison for a long term. So there's several of the kids and relatives of people who either survived or died in Jonestown. Several of their family members are in prison to this day. And so, I mean, there are just so many people who are still impacted 40 years later that I'm telling some of their stories also. Is that book available for pre-order yet? No, it's a little premature, but I hope to have it all ready by the middle of September. That's my goal. If you look up Laura Johnston Cole. Also, I keep my Facebook updated with all the different events that are going on and my speaking events and stuff. I have a website too, um, but my Facebook seems to, I seem to put more things on my Facebook for Jonestown Survivor on Facebook. And it's Laura Johnston Cole, K-O-H-L. And the book that's yeah. available now is Jonestown Survivor, An Insider's Look. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with my audience. I, I don't think we've ever had an interview of quite this character. So I'm still kind of reeling at the implications of what you've told me, but I really appreciate your time. You know, one thing that I think is important is that since Jim said that, you know, you can't go home, it'll never be the same, you can't go home, I think there are a number of survivors who um, take seriously that we have to prove that, yes, you can always go home. There are people who come to my sessions and they say, you know, I'm leaving a cult right now, or I'm living in a cult and I didn't know if I could leave it, but I know I need to, and you've inspired me. One of the things to know is you can always go home. You just have to get help, but you can always make it through to the other side. And because I, since then, in the last 40 years, I have had a good life in spite of everything. Not that I'm not traumatized by the end, but I did go home and every day I have a, a good day in spite of everything Jim said. Laura Johnson Cole, uh, do you have anything else to add? Just, you know, this is the 40th anniversary, and so a lot of the survivors are going to be gathering at an Evergreen Cemetery in Oakland for the 40th anniversary. And it may be one of the last times we all get together as we're all aging and stuff, but, you know, it's been, uh, I don't know, 40 years. It's been an amazing 40 years. We've been trying to tell a story so that we can learn lessons now before it ever happens again.